Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. So, Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be revered above all gods. For all the gods of, of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honour and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy splendor. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord is king. I have just flipped to the next verse. Unfortunately, say to the nations, the Lord is king. The, the world is firmly established It shall never be moved, for he will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the sea rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. And the second reading, which is where I flipped to, unfortunately, in the middle of the first reading, is um, from Matthew chapter 22, uh, chapter 22, verse 15. And if you're reading in the Red Pew Bibles, it's on page 803. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent his disciples, uh, their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance uh, with truth and show deference for no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then, what do you think? Uh, what you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, whose head is this and whose title? They answered, the emperor's. Then he said to them, "Therefore, give uh, give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed and they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. So, important news, if you didn't already know and remember, there is a state election coming up in not very long, end of this month, the 25th, is that right? I think that's the Saturday, sorry? 23rd, I'm glad I asked, thank you. Uh, 23rd, a state election, and don't we love election time as Australians? Generally speaking, there's nothing at all that is annoying or uh, disappointing about that at all. Uh, It's not long after a federal election, uh, just, you know, last year, uh, the current government were elected. And one thing that you might remember we heard a lot about from the federal government in the days after their election was 
the agenda that they have for our nation. You might remember the Prime Minister, uh, Anthony Albanese, uh, jumped up in his acceptance speech uh, on the night of the election, and the first thing he said was, top of our agenda is we want to implement the recommendations from the Uluru Statement to the heart. That's our agenda. That's at the top of our agenda. And pretty great thing to have at the top of your agenda, let me say. The agenda is what they wanted us to know about, what they were going to do, where they were going to go, what they thought was next for our nation. You can be certain we'll be hearing uh, the same thing from the state government and the state opposition this month. Uh, what's the agenda they have for us if they're elected to form a government? What are their plans? What do they see as the key issues facing our state? And, of course, importantly, what will they do about it? Uh, in our passage today uh, that uh, we've just heard read, that Claire's just read for us, uh, there's something like a doorstop interview during an election campaign that happens between the Pharisees and Jesus. Uh, they come to him with a question, and essentially what they're asking is this. Uh, what's your agenda? What's your politics? Uh, as always, uh, Jesus, of course, turns the question around and has a couple of questions for them in return. And he suggests what we all kind of suspect about politicians, if we're honest, most of the time. He kind of says to them, actually, you're hiding your real agenda, and in fact, you're massively compromised. You're nowhere near as pure as you say you are and the opposition is not. You're hiding your real agenda and you're compromised. Uh, as we unpack this little interaction some more this evening, uh, we're going to hear Jesus uh, kind of uncomfortably turn that same question on us. We've been seeing all the way through this section of Matthew that we so often want to say, we're on the side, actually, of the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the ones who are coming to Jesus in droves. We're not on the side of the Pharisees. But actually, sometimes there are things that are more like the Pharisees about us than we would like to believe. We're going to see that tonight as well. Jesus is going to turn that question around on us. What's your agenda? What are you seeking and working toward for your life? And where are you compromised? Most fundamentally of all, he's going to ask us the question, where does your allegiance truly lie? And so as we unpack these things and hear these questions to us from Jesus this evening, uh, we're going to do that under three headings. They'll be up on the screen for you. Uh, firstly, what's at stake here? Secondly, who's setting the agenda? And thirdly, where's your allegiance? Point one, what's at stake? In recent weeks, we've been observing Jesus interacting with the chief priests and the elders, the leaders of the nation of Israel. There have been questions backwards and forwards, and there have been these little moments of prophetic kind of street theatre from Jesus. He's ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's overturned the money changers' tables in the temple courts. He's cursed that poor old fig tree. And along with these moments of street theatre, he's made a cryptic statements. Uh, often in the form of parables, stories used to illustrate the particular point that he wants to make, speaking often along the way about the kingdom of heaven that he's been saying all through his ministry is at hand, it's near, it's coming. Uh, here in this short little interaction that we've had read for us this evening, we get all of those things. There's a lot going on here. And so saddle up as we unpack it a little more. Have a read with me in verse 15. Uh, then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap Jesus in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Uh, they've already taken note, uh, the Pharisees and the other leaders in Israel, uh, that Jesus has been speaking about them in his parables. We're told that a few verses before in Matthew, they knew that Jesus was saying these things about them. And at this point, they just want to end it. They want to put a stop to it. Jesus is causing them all kinds of grief. He's getting way too popular. They want to end it here and now. And so they come up with an ingenious little plan to get him in trouble. Uh, what, what helps us to see the way in which Jesus might get in trouble here is those two different groups of people that are named, the Pharisees 
and the Herodians. Uh, the Pharisees were, if you like, a kind of grassroots purity movement, hugely influential and powerful in Jesus' day. And they were utterly opposed to Roman occupation. As far as they were concerned, the coming of the kingdom of God meant the end of the kingdom of the Romans because it could not possibly be God's will for his people that pagans would be in charge of the holy land that the Lord has given to them. That's the Pharisees. The Herodians, on the other hand, are supporters of the family of Herod, as in King Herod, who we read about in the Gospels, uh, who's essentially a Jewish puppet king installed in Judea by the Romans. He's paid by the Romans to be the Jewish king who kind of keeps everyone in check so that Romans can keep doing their thing. The Herodians thought that the kingdom of God would come essentially through compromise with the Romans, hopefully one day allowing them to, to govern in their own right again. That means that on paper, the Pharisees and the Herodians were actually bitterly opposed to one another. And yet here we see them coming together, sharing a bed together, if you like, in a common cause, a common unity against a common enemy in Jesus. And they come together here with a question for him. But first, they do that thing that we see so often in the politics of our day, don't we? They try to kind of butter him up, get him to lower his guard, flatter him a little bit. Halfway through verse 16, they say to him, Teacher, we know that you are sincere, and you teach the way of God in accordance with truth, and you show deference to no one, for you don't regard people with partiality. In other words, they're saying to him, no one owns you. You're not afraid of anyone. You're a truth teller, a man of integrity. And so we're counting on you for a straight answer here. And then they ask their question, verse 17. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Now, we know because we've already been told that this question is a trap. It's like an Admiral Akbar moment, you know, from Star Wars. It's a trap. Run away. But what's actually at stake? Why is it this is such a trap for Jesus here? What's the corner that the Pharisees are trying to back Jesus into? Uh, the question of paying taxes to the emperor was a major issue in Jesus' day for, for what are actually obvious reasons when you think about it. Imagine waking up one day to discover that your nation has been invaded and taken over by a foreign empire. And then they demand that you pay them a tax as a way of saying thank you for stealing our land. How would you feel about that? Not so good. Uh, well within living memory of the time that this was written, when Jesus was a boy, uh, some 25 years before these events here, uh, there was a Jewish freedom fighter named Judas, and he'd led an uprising against Rome based on precisely this issue, the very same tax that Jesus is being asked about here. You can imagine what happened. There's an uprising in some little backwater province of the Roman Empire, crushed, mercilessly. Jesus, as a boy, would have grown up walking around the countryside of Israel seeing crosses with dead and dying revolutionaries on the side of the road, everywhere throughout Judea, hundreds of them. Making the point, of course, that this tax was not optional. This is required of you. You're here under Roman citizenship, under the, the Roman Empire. This is not an option for you, or that's what happens. This issue of paying taxes to the emperor was, in an occupied territory like Judea, the political question of the day. So how is Jesus going to answer? Uh, on the one hand, if he says, no, it isn't lawful to pay tax taxes to the emperor, then the Herodians, who are in there with King Herod, who are kind of puppets of the, of the Romans, they're going to run off and tell the Romans straight away, and you can guess what happens next. The Pharisees, of course, would be delighted by that outcome, dispatched with Jesus once and for all. As one commentator writes, the Pharisees' question comes with a health warning. 
Uh, on the other hand, Jesus, all through his ministry, has been talking about the kingdom of heaven drawing near, the kingdom of God. Uh, we very easily and incorrectly think of the kingdom of heaven as a, a merely spiritual reality a lot of the time. That's often what we think of when we think of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. But no one in Jesus' day thought that. And Jesus himself didn't think that. The promised kingdom of God meant that God himself was going to come and become king again over his own land, over his own world. That he would bring an end to injustice and save his people from their enemies, including from the Roman Empire. And so if Jesus says, uh, yes, actually, it is lawful to pay taxes to the emperor, it's kind of like he'd effectively be saying, hey, guys, so you know about that kingdom of heaven that I've been talking about all along? I mean, I'm not that into it, really. I'm not that serious about it, especially not if I'm going to get hurt in the process. Let's just chill out a little bit. And, of course, he would immediately lose all the goodwill of the people. He'd be exposed as a coward and as a fraud. Once more, of course, the Pharisees would be delighted. They're happy with really either answer in this situation. It's a trap, and the stakes are high. So how is Jesus going to get out of this one? Uh, notice how the Pharisees phrase this question. They say, is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? They want a yes or a no answer here. They want him to, to say, essentially, whose side are you on? Are you for the Romans or against them? Are you a revolutionary or a phony? Are you this or are you that? Again, a pretty familiar kind of question in our, in our own political context, isn't it, right? Are you left or right? Are you for this person or that person? Are you progressive or conservative? And, you know, we know that there's a spectrum of political views, right? But, of course, everyone else is always to the left or to the right of us, aren't they? And so you can still always ask that question. Where are you, left or right? This or that? Yes or no? Which side are you on? Whichever side Jesus comes down on in this argument, um, he's screwed, basically. It's not going to end well for him. He's compromised either by compromising with the Romans, saying pay their tax, which everyone hates so much, or by compromising his seriousness about God's coming kingdom. I'm not really, I'm not really on for that, actually, either. That's, that's a bit too much. It turns out, though, as we see Jesus here, as he begins to answer the question from the Pharisees, it turns out that an either-or, black-and-white approach to politics, as indeed is the case in most of life, it turns out, usually leaves you much more open to being compromised yourself than you might realise. And it's exactly that that allows Jesus to turn the tables here. What he's about to do is to show how the Pharisees are actually the ones who are compromised here. They're letting the emperor, who they say they oppose, be the one who sets the agenda for their politics, for their life, for their mission. And that's where we're going in point two. Who is it that's setting the agenda? Uh, Jesus begins his response by letting the Pharisees know that he knows exactly what they're trying to do. Verse 18, but Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Unlike Admiral Akbar, he knew it was a, a, a trap already going in. And he calls them hypocrites. Uh, calling them that, Jesus is already beginning to make the point that he's going to expand upon as his answer goes on. If there's anyone who hates hypocrisy, it's Jesus. He's going to have an awful lot to say about hypocrisy in the next chapter of Matthew, actually. We'll get there in a few weeks. Hypocrites, he says, you say one thing, but you do another. You say you believe one thing, but actually your actions say otherwise. Or you say two different things at the same time when it suits you. Hypocrites. He says, you're the ones who are compromised here. How so? How is it that they're compromised? Jesus takes the initiative back here by asking his questioners a question. Classic Jesus again. He does this all the time. They've asked him his question. He's called them hypocrites. And then he continues, verse 19. He says, show me the coin that's used for the tax. 
and they brought him a denarius. And then they said to, uh, he said to them, uh, they said to him, no, that's not right. He said to them, I've mistyped it in my notes, apologies. He said to them, whose head is this and whose title? They answered, the emperor's. Uh, what Jesus is doing is publicly exposing the hypocrisy that he's just accused the Pharisees of. Here's a photo. Uh, this is the, the coin, uh, actually, that uh, Jesus was talking about. Uh, a silver coin uh, called a denarius was used to pay this particular tax that every member of the Roman Empire had to pay once a year uh, for the privilege of living under Roman occupation. Uh, I had the privilege of actually seeing one of these in the flesh this week. I went to, to visit someone to catch up, uh, and uh, his grandparents, it turns out, have an actual denarius from this actual time period when Jesus was, was kind of walking around in Palestine. Awesome. They said I could borrow it and bring it to show you, and I said, that's a bad idea. <laughs> I'm going to lose your denarius. I'll just put a photo on the screen. That's fine, but pretty cool. Uh, it's a coin that's, that's not actually worth that much, really. Uh, it's worth about a day's wage for a working-class person in Jesus' day. Uh, probably, you might guess, something like 20 bucks. Uh, in today's money. Not a massive annual tax, right? 20 bucks a year. But the controversy was about what it represented, imperial oppression. Already it's a bit awkward for the Pharisees. They're anti-empire, and yet here they are in possession of the hated imperial currency that they say you shouldn't pay. But there's even more to it than that. Now take a close look at the picture there on the screen. Firstly, in the Jewish law of the day, you weren't allowed to put a person's face on a coin that was tantamount to idolatry. But here's Caesar's face on these coins, doing the rounds amongst God's people in God's holy land, the face of Caesar. Uh, second, you can see in the picture that there's some writing around the edge of the coin. Uh, that's the title that Jesus refers to. Whose head is this? Caesar's, the emperor's, Tiberius Caesar. Uh, whose title is this? Whose inscription? Uh, here's what it says. I won't um, ask Elliot to test his Latin. I'll just tell you what it says. Uh, here's what it says. On one side it says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side it says, high priest. Son of God, high priest. Uh, enough to send a shiver down the spine of any devout Jew. And in fact, actually to handle something like that, someone claiming to be God, someone claiming to be the high priest who mediates access to God, is a, a violation, actually, of the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol. This is what Jesus is drawing attention to here. Uh, the Greek word that our English Bible translates as head is the Greek word icon, an icon, an image. Jesus asked them, whose image is this? Whose icon? Whose idol? He's suggesting that simply by having this coin in their possession, the Pharisees have already compromised their devotion to God. You might imagine a little bit like this. I'm going to just try and act this out a little bit for you with that background information so you can see how it goes. Does someone actually have a coin? Someone show me the coin the tax is paid with. Anyone? Serious question? Anyone got a coin? So, here's the coin used to pay the tax, right? Uh, you might imagine Jesus going something like this. Going... This coin, this piece of garbage, whose head is on this coin? Whose inscription is this? With disgust on his face. Yes, Queen Elizabeth, thank you, Gab, for pointing that out. Very helpful for the point that I'm trying to make right now. He's holding it, right? They're like between his, you know, his, his thumb and his forefinger going, who's this? This that you're holding in your hand. Another little moment of street theatre from Jesus. How could a devout Jew even handle something as idolatrous as this, he's saying. In other words, you're trying to back me into a corner, he says, and show that I'm compromised, but you're the ones who are compromised already, politically and spiritually, 
by holding on to something like this. What's really going on for them is that despite all their righteous fervor for the kingdom of God, the Pharisees are actually letting the empire set the agenda. Their measure of whether or not you're really serious about the kingdom of God is, are you for or against the emperor? For or against Rome? And so Jesus says, just screw it. Like, don't, why? Why hold on to something like that? You're the ones who are in a bad place here. They're compromised. Already there's kind of a thorny question for us here as well. The question, of course, is are there ways in which you might be compromised, just like the Pharisees? Are there ways in which we say we're all in with Jesus, but in reality we're letting something or someone else set the agenda for our lives? Are there things that you treat as black and white, either or, all or nothing, obvious things that you should have in place in your life? that end up actually putting you in a difficult situation in relation to God's kingdom. And so what is it that sets the agenda for your life? Uh, Maybe it's owning a house or renovating one. Is that what your life is aimed towards? Uh, Maybe it's education or a career. If I get a degree from a decent uni, then I'll be set, I'll be secure. Or maybe it's a romantic relationship. If I find the right person, if I find that companionship that I'm longing for, then my life will be on the right course. That's what I'm setting my agenda toward. What Jesus does here is to expose the Pharisees as hopelessly compromised already. You say you're all about the kingdom of God, but you're letting the emperor be the one who sets the agenda. And so the question is, what sets the agenda for you? So Jesus stages this little moment of theatre here, uh, but he hasn't quite landed his punchline yet. He's got more to say, believe it or not. It's already pretty spicy. Uh, What he does, when Jesus lands his punchline, what he does is to drive home the same question again. Who's setting the agenda, but in even starker terms? He says, where is your allegiance? Where does your allegiance truly lie? Point three. Jesus asks whose image, whose idol is on this coin, and the Pharisees answer, the emperor's. And then Jesus goes for the jugular, verse 21. Then he said to them, give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. Uh, Now, this is a pretty famous saying of Jesus. Uh, Many, even all of you will have heard this saying at some point before, render unto Caesar, give to Caesar what is his, and give to God the things that are God's. Uh, This famous little saying is a little bit like onions and ogres. It has layers. So we've got to peel some of them back. Uh, Sometimes uh, this little saying is taken to mean that there's a legitimate place for secular government in the world, that it can coexist with God's kingdom. Now, there's truth to that. That's what Paul's talking about uh, in Romans chapter 13. You can go and read a bit there about what the scriptures have to say about a theology of government. Uh, As Paul writes there, we should, as a matter of Christian discipleship, pay our taxes because under the kingship of Jesus, the governments of our world still have a role to play. Uh, But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, This isn't a lecture about the relationship between church and state. It's a dogfight between Jesus and his opponents. Is Jesus for the empire or against it? His answer here plays on a well-known revolutionary saying uh, that came out of that tax revolt that we talked about when Jesus was a boy. Uh, It was this, essentially, pay back the pagans what they deserve. Give to the pagans what's due to the pagans. Meaning, of course, to grab your sword, your bow and arrow, your spear, whatever you've got to hand, and do to the pagans what they've done to us. Kill some pagans. Take up arms against the oppressor. And so give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, give the emperor what he deserves, sounds a lot like revolution. But to say it while he's holding that coin in his hand, 
Sounds a lot like he's saying, pay the tax. Pay this back to, back to the emperor. So had he told them to revolt? Had he told them to pay the tax? Uh, commentator Tom Wright uh, writes this uh, very helpfully. He says, actually, he'd done neither, and he'd done both. Because nobody could deny that the saying was revolutionary in intent, but nor could anyone say that Jesus had forbidden the payment of tax. No wonder the Pharisees were amazed at his response. They're like, whatever he says here, we've got him. And then he managed to get his way out of it. They're amazed. What does all this mean for us? Uh, It's important to remember, as we kind of peel back some more of the layers here, important to remember when this incident takes place. Uh, When Paul wrote uh, Romans 13, uh, and Peter wrote in 1 Peter about honouring the emperor, uh, those two apostles wrote from the same perspective, if you like, that you and I have. We're on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's happened. It's historical reality in the past. Jesus has died, he has been raised again, and now sits on his throne at the Father's right hand, Lord over all creation. But here in Matthew, when this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees happens, it's the Tuesday before Good Friday, the Tuesday before Easter. The kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus has said again and again. God's king is about to be enthroned on a cross and then raised in glory so that all may see that he's the one true son of God. And so in effect, what Jesus is saying is something like this. He says, if the emperor's head is on that coin, if it's his image, then you might as well give them back because he's only got five more days on the throne. His agenda's about to come to nothing. His reign's about to end. God's about to take back his throne, so get on board with God's agenda instead. What does that mean for us? Let the emperor have his silver, but give to God the things that are God's. There's another layer for us here too. Uh, Jesus ties the things that are the emperors to the things that bear his image to those coins. And so what then are the things that belong to God? Well, if you run the logic the other way, the things that bear God's image. What bears God's image? Everyone who was there listening to it knew this, good, devout Jews that they were. And most of you know it too. Anyone who's read the beginning of the book of Genesis, you know it too. What bears God's image? You do. And so Jesus says, give the emperor his silver, but give God yourself, your whole self. Give the emperor his silver, but don't give him your allegiance. Give that to God and let that allegiance be what sets the agenda for your life. What is God's kingdom agenda? See it all the way through Jesus' teaching, through his ministry, in this and the other Gospels. God's kingdom agenda is the forgiveness of sins, it's feeding the hungry, it's healing the sick, it's doing justice for the oppressed, and all the while along, it's inviting people in off the street to join the king at his table as we do those things. The kingdom is never just a spiritual agenda, and it's never merely a material agenda. It's a grace-filled agenda for the whole person and for the whole of creation. It's a kingdom, yes, but so very unlike the kingdoms of the world of which we are so used to, Kingdoms that can only tinker with social structures through coercion and through incentive. At best, a mere shadow of the justice that our world so desperately needs and often much, much worse than that. But the kingdom of heaven brings real power to transform and change, to remake people and through them to remake the world as God remakes us by his spirit to bear his image in the way that we were supposed to in the very beginning. And if you give your whole self to God, then that's what will set the agenda for the whole of your life. You'll have a powerful kingdom agenda for your work, for your relationships, 
for your decisions about your housing and your money. And even though Jesus isn't giving us a lecture here on church and state, uh, it's worth saying with an election, as we mentioned, coming along, that your allegiance to God will set the agenda for your politics too. That doesn't mean that it's going to tell you who to vote for or which issues necessarily the most important, whether you should be left or right. But what it does mean is that you won't be letting the politicians or the culture of the day tell you what matters and what the options are. Instead, you'll let Jesus focus your attention on the things that concern him. A state election coming up soon, I ask the question, what would it look like to let God's kingdom agenda shape what you think are the most pressing issues as you come to the ballot box in a little while? Not to let the ads that either side run tell you about it, but to go, who are the people who Jesus cares about? Who are the vulnerable? Who are the poor and needy? Who are those who need to hear the gospel? How might those people, those concerns, actually be what shapes the way that I engage with the politics of this state, this nation? But really, really importantly, at the same time as your allegiance to God will set the agenda for your politics, it'll remind you that the politics of the day isn't where real solutions actually lie. Even the best of secular government is just a shadow of the kingdom of heaven that has now been launched in Jesus, this side of his resurrection. And the place where we actually see that most clearly is not in the world out there, but here in the church, in the community of all of those who together have pledged allegiance to King Jesus. So that whatever happens in the world around us, our love and care for one another and for the world gives the world a glimpse of the kingdom that has come in Jesus and is coming as he comes again. A community where we put one another's needs before our own, where we make sacrifices to serve one another as he served us, where we forgive one another as he's forgiven us, and where we take every opportunity to invite others into that joyful feast as well. And as we do that, there will be ways in which actually the world is changed not just here in the church, but outside it, as together we shine that kingdom light in the world. Friends, that's what it looks like to give to God the things that are God's, to give God your whole self. Of course, none of us do that perfectly. None of us is uncompromised. We all have our own little agendas going on in our lives. But we follow one, the king, who set his heart perfectly on his heavenly father one who uncompromisingly pursued his, king, his father's kingdom agenda to the very end, the true son of God, the great image bearer, our high priest, the Lord Jesus. He alone gave himself to God, body and soul, and he received the things that are yours and mine. He received death and destruction so that you and I instead might receive the things that are by rights his life and glory. And so we give full allegiance to him because he has given his whole self for us. Uh, This morning at the 10am service, uh, we uh, baptised my twins, who are just about to turn one, uh, Zach and Rose, uh, which was a lot of fun. Uh, And baptism is this beautiful moment where in response to the grace of God to you, you go, yes, actually, my allegiance is with this King Jesus. Uh, It's put really beautifully in uh, the Anglican baptism service. And so here's the charge that Jesus leaves us with in those words. Brothers and sisters, fight bravely under his banner against sin, the world, and the devil, and continue as Christ's faithful soldier and servant until your life's end. Amen.